as soon as you make it about um, not breaking, like we call them breaking changes, but I think a better conception of breaking changes is, is you ruin someone's day. And you can have a much different conversation about how many fewer days we want to ruin, um, how many you know fewer late night calls you want to get because something that you build isn't working anymore, um, then like, is our API designed well? I'm Jason Harmon, and this is API Intersection where you'll get insights from experienced API practitioners to learn best practices on things like API design, governance, identity auth, versioning, and more. Welcome back to API Intersection. As always, I'm your host, Jason Harmon, CTO at Stoplight. So in the course of, uh, you know, hitting conferences and roaming around, um, met a really interesting uh, founder of a really interesting startup that I think kind of, you know, flies in the orbit of Stoplight. And uh, we've stayed in touch since then. And I think my favorite thing that we're, that I hope we get into is the idea that building an API for the first time, it can be difficult and doing it at scale and producing many APIs can be difficult, but um, it's, it's the iterations after that, that get real messy if you're not careful. Uh, so I'm, uh, stoked to get into that and really dig into like the real world problems that that represents, uh, with Mr. Aiden Kuniff from Optic. Uh, Aiden, thanks for joining. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me, Jason. Yeah. Uh, so Aiden, tell us a little bit about what, uh, what you're all about and, uh, what Optic does and, uh, what, what got you down this road? <laughs> um, so yeah, I've been building dev tools for a really long time. And um, the first thing I was building was a low code tool and we were helping big companies build their first apps. And um, something in the back of my head, you know, after building that up for a couple of years was like pining to help companies that already existed um, and developers who are already working on big, big infrastructure and big projects, like do their job a little bit better. Um, that brownfield opportunity felt like a really cool place for me to work. Um, so I started looking at all these things I could build. We built something that was sort of like Copilot. Um, and the only thing people wanted our Copilot thing to do back in like 2019 before real Copilot was document their APIs for them and then keep them all up to date and connect sort of when I change the code in this Python repo, get updated over here. So that's how I got into it was just like following users and listening to what they were asking for. Um, today, Optic has evolved a lot from that. Um, really, we see ourselves as a tool that helps companies ship amazing APIs. Um, we think amazing APIs uh, have accurate documentation, never break their consumers, and follow some consistent guidelines. Um, and we really went into a lot of companies over the last two years and asked, you know, what's not working about API governance and have just built exactly what they told us was wrong. Um, so we, that's sort of my whole ethos is I try to really sit down with developers, hear sort of what's working and what isn't working, and then build tooling that can kind of make their lives better, but then everyone who comes afterwards life better too. And I think we found a really cool way of making governance something that teams can actually um, reach up and grab, whereas it might've been a little out of reach for them before. Yeah, I love it. Um... I think that's the part that I get excited about. Sometimes on the show here, we have, you know, practitioners who are running programs and, you know, none of us can help it. The thing that we're working on, we're proud of, and we want to show all the good things. And I think sometimes like the tooling view of it is like, we help clean up all the messes for those folks. <laughs> so like, 
I think for folks listening is like, if you're maybe not that far down the road, hopefully today is like a preview of the things you're probably going to run into as you scale it out and have that second iteration. Um, I was going back and, and listening to your talk from API Days Paris, which I didn't get to do last year, um, which I think was a, a great overview of what you guys do and some of these problems. One of my favorite things in there that, that you're kind of used as an explanatory frame is that um, APIs are really promises between those who use them and that it's really a trust building exercise. I just, it's, it's lovely. So tell me more. <laughs> Yeah, so a lot of this came out of um, trying to get like people to care about APIs who didn't care about them before. So there's always um, people who are championing this by the people who listen to this podcast, and I'm sure they've run up against other people in the organization who may not care about the API story as much as they do. Um, for whatever reason, it might be because I like you know doing stand up or I just like talking to people and coming up with like essays and stories to tell. Um, we kind of made that our problem too. So like we would help some of our early customers champion APIs to other people, and this promise story just works really well because as soon as you make it about um, not breaking, like we call them breaking changes, but. I think a better conception of breaking changes is, is you ruin someone's day. And you can have a much different conversation about how many fewer days we want to ruin, um, how many you know fewer late night calls you want to get because something that you build isn't working anymore, um, then like, is our API designed well? I think, I think really these kinds of uh, stories that we can find like, are really effective. And a lot of this promise story, I think, just works really well for people and helps us really like, think about the person on the other side of it much more than a client or a consumer. And I don't even know what that is anymore. Is it ChatGTP? Like, is it a machine? When you say it's a promise, like, you think about the people on the other side of it. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it makes sense, though, uh, as sort of a logical abstraction um, when we talk to folks around the community, you know, it's like the, the one thing that's always true from someone who's kind of been through it is that this isn't really a technology problem. Like there's so many good tools for building APIs. It's easy. It's a culture problem. I think why it resonates with me is like all cultures are founded on some basis of a trust, uh, trust in shared ideas. Right. Yeah. And, uh, the idea here is simple and I like it. It's like, you know, don't make someone's day a mess by breaking the thing that they built on top of. Right? Yeah. yeah. Don't pull the rug out or whatever it is. I mean, um, I think that the reason I really like APIs and I've been working in the space is because it's like the supply chain, you know, it's like the modern supply chain. It's how all these pieces fit together. And, you know, if your car is made with screws inside and then one day the screws suddenly get half an inch bigger in diameter, bad things happen to the car. Um, and I think it's the same kind of thing with APIs. It's just like, you know, we have to assemble our software from all these pieces, whether our colleagues built them or other companies did. And I think um, keeping those pieces like too spec, too schematic, like that's where that word came from, is a really important piece of making sure that everything we're building works together. And once we're not worrying about like, will the lights stay on, we can start thinking about hopefully more interesting problems and um, doing better for our customers and for our, our, our users. Yeah, and, uh, that's all, it's like a, a meta story there because like the supply chains are increasingly API automated. So <laughs> now the problem is the actual manufacturing of the, of the material. The, the real story of the version you gave is uh, parking lots full of trucks with no, uh, no ECUs. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> no, yeah, uh, supply chains are, are real and hard. Um, so, I mean, this, this breaking change thing, right? Like, um, you know, you, you talk to like computer scientist types and are like, you know, it's, it's really simple. It's contravariance and covariance, right? Like uh, there's, there's rules for this. But it's interesting to me how often folks like kind of freeze up and go, I don't, I'm not sure. Like, I don't know what the rules, is this testable? Is this like a real concept or is it like we have to guess as to what's breaking and what's not, you know? Yeah. So I think there's, uh, there's two kinds of breaking changes. Um, and this is actually something we've, we've had to work through with different teams we've, we've um, been partnering with. So there's a kind that are more the computer science-y kind, like um, it was type string before, and now it's type number. If you try to put the string bits in the number buffer, everything goes bad. Um, those ones are really easy to catch with software. Um, it's sometimes difficult to figure out the context though. So like if it's in a request, you have to treat it differently than if it's in a response, which is treated differently than a parameter. So some of that stuff, you know, you might have to go back to the book for and optic is really good. And so are a lot of other tools. Um, at figuring out if there's a breaking change just by looking at like the two versions of your spec, the one on the feature branch and the one on the main branch, and it can block the PR if it's going to be breaking. The other kind, I think, is the really interesting kind. And this is actually why we also show you a diff of the API, because this is stuff that only a person will probably figure out. Um, I've heard some crazy breaking changes. Like I've heard about there was a, um, a league, which will remain unnamed, that had cameras, and those cameras would measure the speed of balls. Um, and they have algorithms for like trading players and figuring all this stuff out. And they upgraded all the cameras in all the stadiums. And all the algorithms broke because there was more precision in, uh, in like the bits that were coming through. Like there was, it was a different kind of, uh, you know, ranges of error bars than what the algorithms expected. So everyone's algorithms broke still a number it's still in the response but everything that they were using it for was broken um, and i've heard similar stories like in factories using like very precise measurements um, for different like amounts of current they have to put into things all kinds of weird things like this around sensors in real world so i think that's like the other kind of breaking change which you really have to understand your domain and how your customer is using what you do um, you know the api might be the same but you can't you know, refund something that's already been refunded and like those kind of rules that kind of exist outside of the spec. Yeah, it, it, I think it's true that everybody gets it that like you can't just rename a field because that in essence means that field just disappeared and there's a new field that no one knows about and you can't change data type. And some of these things are more obvious. I think that the ones I've seen uh, quite a bit of too is like where response provides an enum of values and the enum values change uh, or there's, yeah. there's a new enum value added and there's lots of code in rendering lists from those things and stuff like that that are theoretically programmatically detectable. But quite often, to your point, there's like devil in the details of the data that like it takes some human introspection to make an educated guess about. Yeah, so sometimes we find the best thing we can do for customers is just make that easier to read. Um, Get diffs of open API files. I mean, I'm sure you look at them too all day. They're really hard to decode sometimes because you'll see like five oh, lines yeah. above, five lines below. It could be 10,000 lines long. It's like, what does this even mean? So um, we built like a nice visualization in every pull request. So you see um, the actual spec changes get highlighted versus just what changed in the code. And that also makes like refs and other kinds of abstractions you use in your specs um not as relevant like you might change one ref and if it affects 
20 endpoints. You might not have any way of knowing that, but if you sort of show for this endpoint, this is what changed for this endpoint, this is what changed, you can make better decisions. And I think that's yeah. all it is. Like it's never going to be perfect, but you can help people make better decisions. For sure. Uh, in the days before there were tools that did these things, I've looked at a lot of Git diffs. And I'll tell you when I go and I work on like other hobbies and things where like, for instance, if um, I'm looking at like 3D printing files, it like renders yeah. me this beautiful three-dimensional version of it. And I could scroll it all around and I'm like, why am I still looking at red, <laughs> green, and blue splatters of text to describe this change in GitHub? It's crazy. Come on, guys. I've reached out to yeah. them too. I'm like, what are we doing? Like, let's make it better. Um, so yeah, I, I couldn't agree more that especially when specs are broken down into kind of, you know, reusable chunks, then it's like impossibly brutal, right? If it's like, yeah. I'm changing, say, a response model that refers to a shared uh, a shared model across many APIs, my ability to understand the scope of the change is like, yeah, who knows, yeah. right? Yeah, um, and I mean, developers are all trying to do the right thing. Like no one's yeah. trying to break their consumers. But I think when you put friction in the way of making good decisions, um, this is not just a developer thing, it's just a human thing. Like the quality of our decisions go down because it takes us more effort to figure out everything that we need to know to make the best decision. Yeah. So if you look at a lot of observability tools, a lot of testing tools, um, a lot of things like this, which are, you know, gatekeeping and lock filing, like important parts of the process, all they're really doing is making the cost of the right decision lower. Um, or at least the cost of getting the context to make the right decision a lot lower. And then just trusting that like with the right information, most people will make the, the right decision. No one, no one wants to be the guy who broke the API. Um, and uh, you just have to make it really obvious, like if that's what you're about to do. Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, I, I can't help but think about like, you know, Spectral and some of the other kind of linting tools and like setting up uh, rules for consistency and things. And this isn't exactly like, it's not really a breaking change thing, but, um, this attempt to take like the human error prone things, right? Like if I sit down and I look at your API, you just designed or that you just changed and I try to understand what it does and all those things, like it's useful. But if I'm looking at, did you use the dashes and the underscores and all the things in the right places? Like I'm going to screw up. There's no way I'm yeah. going to catch everything. So I guess in, you know, as you look at this stuff, like how much of it is, is automatable to detect these, you know, change problems and consistency issues and how much is left to be manual and, and maybe what makes sense to be uh, manual? Yeah, I think there's always going to be stuff that makes sense to be manual. Um, just like we're never going to fully trust a machine or a test passing to tell us that we can merge a pull request. Um, the stuff I think we can automate that we don't automate as well as we could today, or at least what I see teams not automate as well as they could, is some of the governance rules. Um, and when I first came across like Spectral and Redockly CLI, which were in the space before I got here, I was like, why why doesn't everyone have like a thousand rules for like how to design APIs? Like I don't want to remember how we do pagination here every single time. Um, but when I got in and I started talking to companies, what was really interesting is when they showed me the rules they had turned on, it seemed like the stuff that really wasn't the most important to, to me. Like it was making sure we had descriptions, making sure we had set um, like operation ID everywhere. And all that stuff is important for code generation and for gateways and for security posture. Like, so it's all, it's all important, but I felt like there was like a missing opportunity to automate a lot more of that. And when I asked a lot of people why they weren't uh, turning on rules for like pagination and things I thought should exist, 
I'd expected the answer to be because they're hard to write. And that wasn't the answer at all. It was because uh, they were getting a lot of false positives on stuff. So it was saying, you know, go change this endpoint that's been out for four years to use our new pagination. And developers um, just didn't, didn't change it because there would be a breaking change. So there's this really interesting catch-22. It's like if you, if you fix everything so the errors go to zero, you're probably going to break a lot of stuff too. So um, what we built in our open source project was just a way to run spectral rules and other API rules on new stuff. Uh, so when you're adding new things that can be designed sort of up to your latest standards, apply one set of rules and then have a different set of rules for legacy. And now most of our customers who use the tool have one set of really comprehensive rules for their latest standards that only runs on new stuff. And then like their must-haves, like security running everywhere else. And what that's done is it lets them automate a lot more of this without worrying about a new team getting onboarded and now getting really sour because like they either have to change their spec and uh, break a lot of consumers, which isn't good for them, um, or they have to turn these rules off or they have to ignore them. And I think the signal noise problem was actually really big and I didn't think that's where it was going to be, but we found some really good solutions to that. Yeah, I know when we when we first met, I guess it was in uh, API Days in New York, you described some of this stuff and it really resonated because like you said at the beginning, it's an interesting brownfield problem. And the reality in 2023 is like lots of folks have written a lot of APIs. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we're, I think, in a generation of learning the mistakes of the last five to 10 years and trying to like write the ship. And I think it's easy to think, well, let's just go back and fix the old stuff. But in many, many cases, as you try to really reason about what it is that we do, how we're going to represent it in APIs as a platform, it's different than you originally thought about it. Um, and you end up with, uh, with a different shape of those things. And to some extent, you can't just turn off the old stuff and you've got to kind of march toward a new model. But uh, to your point, like you, you don't want to apply new standards to old things. Uh, so it, it makes a ton of sense. For some folks listening, they might think like, oh, this is all talking about like, you know, you put an API out there in the wild, in the public. And uh, of course, you got to like cross your T's and dot your I's and everything's got to be perfect. You don't want to have, you know, 10,000 developers that use your API suddenly break. But um, it's funny because I, I hear really the internal concerns. And I, I'm curious, like in the different engagements that you're having with these customers, is it primarily kind of internal or external facing problems you're solving? I'd say it's probably like 70% internal, maybe 30% external. And um, of that external, maybe 15% is like public, public APIs. Mm -hmm. And the other 15% is, um, is like private partner APIs. Partner stuff, yeah. Yeah. And I think the internal story is actually really interesting because, I mean, just in the last three years, most companies have become remote. Um, that you know, changes the relationship between all these smaller teams. And most companies um, have been exploring at least some re-architecture towards microservices. And a lot of that's coming to fruition. I saw recently like the Gartner, um, I think it was just out this week that um, like they think we're out of the trough of despair and on to the next phase of microservices. Um, and that's been like, if I had to quantify like what most of our you know, customers are, are facing, like that's one of the triggers for them is we just switched to microservices and now we're having all these problems coordinating teams. Um, can we make these APIs stable, which I think is an easy thing anyone can start with. It's just prevent the breaking changes. 
and then all the other uh, governance stuff can come afterward. But that that one thing just helps teams work a lot more autonomously, it was what, which was the promise of this whole new way of architecting software. You just, you just took away my hook, man. Like this oh, is so my sorry. thing, right? I, I go, what are you going? Where would you start? And you just did it. I didn't even ask. Took it away from me. But no, that's fine. I'm just kidding. <laughs> so there you go. There's the note. Where do you get started? Don't make breaking changes. I think that's very down to earth, reasonable, uh, reasonable goals. But it's funny. This is the thing you know that happens when we talk to folks on the show. Sometimes you can look at a problem space for a while and boil it down to something really simple. Just don't yeah. make breaking changes. It's a big deal. It's it makes a huge mess every time it happens. That's funny. Um, I guess you know. Let's going into the weeds a little bit with this being really the the heart of it. Like, um, what are some examples of uh, you know ways that you would look at this? Things that you would do to try to detect breaking changes. Um, you know, at kind of a high level for someone who's looking at all this going, oh, shit, I'm just about to change my API. Am I going to break it? Like now you're making me paranoid. You know, what should folks look for? Um, so I think there's there's two things that um, are really important to, to making sure you're catching these breaking changes. Um, the first is is just making sure you have a spec that's up to date. There's a lot of ways of getting there. Um, you can use tools like Stoplight for that. Um, you can manually write it in an editor. You can have it generated from your code. Um, Optic and some other tools also can generate open API from your test. So if your test change, your spec will get updated and you can you know, approve all the changes it makes. But that's one way of keeping it up to date. Um, and if you're confident that your spec is up to date, then you can run a, another tool um, like Optic or OASDIF or some of the other projects that are good at looking at breaking changes. Um, in a CI pipeline and basically do a comparison between whatever the current version of your API is that's out, whether it's a, a Git tag or um, just was on the main branch and the current version that you're updating. And the idea is every API change is tracked in open API. I think that's something Optic really believes in. Um, and I think it's is really the only way to have a nice audit trail of what's changing. So, so getting good at that and then just making sure that those changes are being tested somehow. Um, to make sure that they're not affecting, you know, the users or breaking your API in some way that you that you don't want it to. You can also manually review those files. I think that's perfectly valid if you don't have tooling in place today. Um, and uh, there's ways to uh, make that easier, like putting it in, you know, your Confluence guide. Like here's what we consider breaking changes, or even writing it down so people know to, you know, review that part of it um, can be really effective as well. I think sometimes people just need to be prompted. You know, the checkboxes on the PRs, please review this, uh, you know, adding one for breaking changes can be really effective too. So uh, one seemingly common theme these days, uh, you know, we're talking about kind of how to do this on a per API basis and waving our hands a bit at like the idea of, you know, at scale, things have to be consistent and all that. But um, it, it's like this kind of sprawl thing nowadays, right? Is mm -hmm. that it's, it's not that there's a lack of APIs. It's that um, we made a bunch of APIs that we didn't really do the right things for in a variety of ways. And now the, like the, uh, I don't know, our, our team likes that. I said recently, um, that there's like an army of zombie APIs running around at some companies, right? It's their shadow APIs. People will call it. Um, one thing I'm fascinated that y'all are doing as part of, uh, the, the optic open source thing is, uh, sort of generating specs from traffic, uh, but not doing it with live traffic, which I think is a difference. 
uh, and yeah. like the kind of hard file thing and all that. I'd, I'd love to hear more about this. Yeah. So one thing that, um, you know, prevents a lot of companies from going API first or, you know, sometimes we get inside of a company and we help 10 teams go API first, um, but then there's 50 more that aren't. And usually to expand that bubble, the thing that's blocking us is that teams don't have accurate open API specs. And asking a bunch of developers who never touched the spec before to now, you know, document an existing service and keep it up to date is, is a pretty big ask sometimes. Like, it again, it's easy if you're starting from scratch and you've set up nice generators and it's all part of your workflow. If you're coming in from the side and things are already as they are, uh, we just, I mean, internally we have the mantra, everyone's starting from the middle, so we'll help them do that. Um, and it just like, it gets it out of our head that it has to be perfect from day one, like we're going to figure it out. Um, and the best approach we found is just to hook into test. Big companies usually have a lot of great test coverage of the services they build. And we have Optic that basically runs in CI pipelines um, and also can run locally. And we treat the open API file as a snapshot. So just like snapshot testing, like um, if anyone's not familiar with that, you run all the traffic through and we'll sort of uh, look at your spec and we'll just add stuff that wasn't there before. So if we see a new endpoint, we add the new endpoint. And we've built it in such a way that even if you're using refs or have multiple files or schemas from a lot of different places, it will always sort of respect whatever you wrote by hand. So it's never going to overwrite and regenerate the whole thing. It's only going to add the stuff that's missing or change the types of things that have changed. Um, and this has helped a lot of developers who were sort of opposed to writing a spec um, get on board the train and be part of the process. And again, once you have a once you have a spec, like the next thing people ask for is, well, let's just not make breaking changes. Every week we have people who document their APIs for the first time. And then we see like a week later, they add the breaking change checks. And we're like, oh my God, this is exactly what we we're hoping for. Um, so that that's something that is just a really nice approach for teams that you know can't quite go all the way design first uh, from the beginning. Um, but still want to have specs and still want to have governance. Yeah, I, I think it's like uh, these days, observability is such like a hot term and uh, everybody's looking to, to hook into it. Um, but I, I feel like there's so much magical thinking in that, that like you can just, you know, hit a button somewhere and it'll just tell you what all the things are and describe what they do. So I, I like this approach more that it's a little more practical and realistic that like, Sure, you can kind of use some of the testing traffic to like fill in the blanks, but that's really just going to give you kind of a, a skeleton that you've ultimately got to go do a little reasoning to to describe what it is. Um, so it balances between the push button magic thinking and to your point, the incredible burden of go find the things that no one knows about and yeah. describe them in detail by, you know, reverse engineering code or something. Yeah. And what we also found, I mean, we, we went into production when we first started, like everyone else did, thinking that observability of APIs was going to be this huge thing and generating specs would be valuable. Um, but it didn't fit in the workflow. And, and we've really specifically been trying to help developers ship better APIs consistently. And what we found is when you detect, you know, an API diff or a breaking change in production, the very next question is, how do we catch this way earlier next time? Because um, that's not the place you actually want to find it. So it was taking a huge amount of effort to be in those environments when we built the product that way originally. And immediately, anyone who was going to be successful on our platform was taking it out of those environments and putting it way earlier. So I think um, there's definitely merits to putting some of that API observability stuff into real environments. But I don't think it fits into the developer workflow very well. 
um, just like getting alerts from you know your monitoring tool doesn't necessarily help you build better software every day. It helps you fix problems and you know figure out what processes you need so you don't have those problems again. But it's not like immediately going to fix the problem once it's found. Yeah, I think there's. I always look at like to some extent for folks doing tooling, like the the being in the runtime environment can be a trap. Um, one. The security and compliance lift to get in the door at sort of zero trust environments is insurmountable for, for yeah. smaller startups, right? You cannot fulfill the diligence responsibilities to be in that environment. And then two is like, there's a natural gravity that's going to pull anything that does this sort of stuff into, oh, it's monitoring, right? Yeah. And to your point, like all the real change happens to the left. That's what this shift left movement's all about. Yeah. Um, so the, the runtime matters, it counts, but I like the idea of kind of capturing recorded traffic and it could or could not be from a, a production environment, but more than likely a test environment as just a safer option that yeah. uh, has so many less barriers to making progress. Yeah. And I think this is, um, there's also a, another piece of this too, which is if your APIs are used a lot and you find these issues in production, the natural tendency is to go fix them. But if your API is so big that people are going to already have updated their integrations, we've heard stories from uh, people on the Slack team, and I think some of this has been written publicly too. Um, you know, they would put out a breaking change by accident, revert it six hours later, and they'd get angry phone calls from the people who had found the API and started using it in those six hours. Because yeah. now you have two different constituencies of people who you can break, and they want different things, so it's an impossible situation. So. Yeah. That's like that's a very real issue, especially with internal APIs and big companies, um, and maybe not the best lines of communication. You can very well break one person, fix that person, and then have broken someone else without realizing it. Yeah. So just being early is so important for this stuff. Yeah, that fits one of the uh, principles I, I live and die by in in externalizing things. Is once it crosses that boundary to the internet, you can't take it back. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and if you do, man, it's it comes at a, a toll. <laughs> yeah. I, I tell people APIs are like satellites. You can shoot them into space. I, I love that example. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, but like you can't change them once they're up there. Like yeah. maybe you can set like a tiny software patch, but like you can't like add a new sensor. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I love that you pointed out that uh, the, the Hubble repair, like how remarkable it was is the only time we've ever touched a satellite in space yeah. <laughs> <laughs> out of like tens of thousands of launches. Yeah, it's yeah. a great example. It's uh, once it's out there, it's hard to get to. Um, and actually, it's not hard to get to. In this case, it's really more like it would be like going up and you know fiddling with one of the G, you know, with a, a substantial amount of the GPS satellites. You could take down you know a massive amount of infrastructure. Here, it's like yeah. the the invisible dependencies uh, that, to your point, like in the span of a few hours, you could have someone who's already depending on that change. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's uh it's a, it's the Conway's law thing too. Like people are mm. going to depend on things you don't even realize they're depending on in ways you don't realize that they're depending on them. Yeah. Um, and like a breaking change can be, you added a new, a new, like you were saying. Um, and like there were five tabs before and now there's six and they don't fit on the screen. Like it's not a breaking API change, but the UI is going to look weird and it might like be really confusing to users for a couple of days. So there's all, there's all these little subtle things. And I think, um, I think that we're never going to fix them all, but drawing people's awareness to them now that software has been being built in this way where there's a million different pieces all coming together, um, is super valuable. And, and all we want to do is just help teams do it a little bit better. 
Um, so that's our whole pitch is just, we help people ship better APIs. Yeah. It's funny. I, th- I think in some ways this, uh, you know, cause we're certainly at uh, stoplight somewhat in the same boat of trying to figure some of these things out. I think y'all are extending a lo- you know, a step deeper, but there's lots of folks poking at this and I almost look at it as like the early days of, if we go really early in like the, the Microsoft stack, you have like the DLL hell stuff and Java world, you, you know, trying to manage all of your jar dependencies. And then that all transposed into node and everything else, right? It's like, it's like, uh, we're all trying to figure out how to build the package manager for APIs in a sense, right? Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, I've, I've called earlier versions of our project, like the package manager for APIs, um, so yeah, I love that analogy. It's definitely it's definitely a, a little bit harder because the APIs can change under you, whereas the dependencies you can just pin it to a version. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, we we struggle with that all the time. We've been helping teams too. There's like an optic package that can help you um, follow SEMVAR properly in all of your specs, which isn't obvious to people that they need to increment. You know, which of these three digits. Um, but that's another thing that can help people at least like looking at it internally, understand kind of this, the guarantees that you're making. All right, Aiden. Well, uh, normally this is where I would throw the, uh, you know, where would you get started? You already stole that from me. We already did it. Uh, no, I, th- I think it's a simple and lovely message. Don't break the API, folks. Uh, you know, go back, listen to this, take a look at Optic. And, uh, you know, there's plenty of other options out there, too. But uh, it's if you haven't done it yet, it sucks. And the blowback from it is terrible. So uh, definitely learn lessons from today's episodes. Um any uh, kind of closing thoughts here, Aiden, and um, you know where folks can maybe look to kind of follow you and maybe learn some more of this stuff? Yeah, so our website is uh, useoptic.com. I'm also on Twitter a lot, uh, Aiden D. Kniff. Um, and I just love talking about this stuff. So there's uh, some links on our website and also um, you know, on, on my Twitter. Just reach out if you want to talk. I'm happy to sit down for 20, 30 minutes, just talk about anyone's API programs or some of these challenges. And I really, I love what you said earlier, Jason, that it's a, a people problem. Uh, I, tell, I tell my mom I work on people problems that are disguised by technology. Um, <laughs> and uh, I really I really enjoy solving them. So if there's anything you can do to help, please just let me know and I have to sit down whenever. Awesome. Well, there you go, folks. No excuse not to go get some help. Go talk to Aiden. Thanks for coming, Aiden. We appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Jason. Thanks for listening. If you have a question you want to ask, look in the description of whichever platform you're viewing or listening on, and there should be a link there so you can go submit a question, and we'll do our best to find out the right answer for you.